0: We'll dismiss our kids to children's ministry. If you want to open your Bibles to the book of Psalm, chapter 16, we are actually going back into our Acts 2 series, but only si- sort of kinda, or kinda sorta. In Acts two, I'll just read this to you. In Acts two, twenty two, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's about where we left our Acts series, picking up in verse 24. God raised him up You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter's quoting from Psalm 16, where I asked you to turn, and we'll look at that further throughout this message. It isn't accidental or tangential that, that Peter mentions David as he's making the case for Christ in his resurrection. And his reference not only to Psalm 16, but later on to Second Kings 7, I believe, is important for us to understand. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be continuing our series in Acts, but we'll be doing that by looking at the promises and prophecies of David. Today, Psalm 16. Let me read again from Psalm 16 this time, the original source material of what Peter referenced. Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shoal. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, one of the reasons why this ancient book called the Bible is still relevant to us today is that the people who wrote it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit were after the very same things that you and I are after. Just look at verses 8 through 10 for a minute. And look at all the promises found therein. I will not be shaken. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. You will not abandon my soul to shoal. So everybody, everybody wants stability and security. You know, I will not be shaken. My flesh dwells secure. Everybody wants happiness. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. Everybody wants like a total personal integration, meaning we want everything in us and about us to be on the same page. I'm going to talk more about that in a little bit. But, you know, he says my whole being rejoices. There's no inner conflict. There's no inner struggle. This is this is a full-hearted, full-person sort of devotion. And then he says you'll not abandon my soul to Sheol. He, he has hope in the midst of suffering. This is stuff we all want. We all want stability. We all want happiness. We all want to be kind of a whole person, fully integrated. We all want hope in suffering. But compare that to verse 4 in Psalm 16. It says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. So this, this idea of multiplying our sorrows is really important. I want us to think about this for a minute, okay? This idea of multiplying sorrows. Everybody has sorrows. Hard things come into everybody's life, right? Um, how you respond to this sorrow that is brought into your life makes a huge difference in the experience of your life. If you trust God with your, this sorrow that has entered into your life, then that sorrow will only have so much power to hurt you and it sort of remains a finite, singular thing with which you can struggle. You know what it is. You can fight against it. You can deal with it. If you have a sorrow that enters your life and you respond with faith, it still hurts, but it's this thing that you know to deal with. It's one thing. But if instead of trusting God with the sorrow that enters your life, you run into idols, you run to other gods, then you will be multiplying your sorrows. So the Greek mythology of the hydra, this, this monster that if you, if, you, if you cut off the wrong head, if you cut off the middle head, you win. Thing's dead. That's the mortal head. But there are other ones, and if you cut off one of the other heads, what happens? Two more grow back, and then two more grow back, and then two more grow back. So I want you to think, and I really do want you to do this, I want you to think about the worst thing to happen to you in 2018. What was the worst thing that happened to you in 2018? Now, how did you respond? If you responded in faith, then that sorrow has and will remain a finite thing. It's in front of you. You've got to deal with it. It's scary, it's difficult, but it's one thing. But if when the worst thing to happen to you in 2018, when it happened, if you responded with unbelief, then you should be able to go back and trace how your initial response in unbelief has multiplied that initial original trouble. And that now you're in a sea of sea monsters, and you have no idea where the original head, the one you actually have to fight, is, because you've been you've been responding so repeatedly to with unbelief by running to other gods by trusting in other idols that now it feels like you've got a million things to fight. If you'd have responded with belief initially, it would have been the one thing. Still, would have been hard, but it would have been the one thing. But because we sin. In unbelief and run to other gods when this monster enters our life, we soon find that our sorrows are multiplied. So, I have nothing against New Year's resolution. Some pastors kind of think, listen, life's hard, change is hard. If you need something to help you think through your priorities, so on and so forth, whatever, it's fine. In fact, but let me just tell you, what I think would be probably the most effective New Year's resolution. I think one of the most potent ways to change the goodness of your life is to repent of spiritual idolatry. I think that, that the, probably the biggest difference you could make to the amount of goodness you experience and the amount of sorrow you experience is to repent of running after other gods when the sorrow monster comes into your life. Because if you repent of that, if you learn how not to run to your other gods in that face of that struggle, then the thing remains the thing. And life becomes fairly clear, though not necessarily. I'm not making an argument that it becomes super easy. I have a Facebook friend who used to be an alcoholic. She's my age. I think we went to high school together. I don't actually remember her. Um, But we had a big high school uh, she's been drinking for the whole time, like since, since high school. She's been an alcoholic, been a drunkard. And three years ago, she stopped drinking. And she posted this on her Facebook page a while back. Today, the heater went out in my car. It smelled hot. What is that? I thought that was, smelled hot. And when I changed gears, it jumped. A few years ago, while still drinking, I'd have freaked out. Genuinely had no idea what to do, called the whole world, telling them about my terrible misfortune, cussed God, thrown a fit, cried, then called the dealership in a bad mood, saying, lay it on me, and finally used the whole thing as an excuse to drink. Today, instead, I called the dealership, explained the problem, asked if they had a vehicle I could drive, discussed the warranty, dropped it off to be checked and repaired, did some paperwork for a rental, drove off, the world is still spinning, God gets the glory, that's it. Life doesn't always have to be so hard. The difference that Christ has made all comes down to this ability to face the monster in faith. Whatever the sorrow, whatever the crisis is, The difference that Christ makes is to be able to, with faith, look at the thing head on and not multiply your sorrows. When she was a drunk, she would have responded to the sorrow of a broken car with idolatry and fear and sin. And she would have multiplied her sorrows. Now she's walking with Jesus. She responded to the sorrow of a broken car with faith. She took hold of herself. She started adulting. She approached the issue with sober-mindedness. She saw this sorrow as a means of glorifying God. So as we think about this new year, and we think about what we want this year to look like, I think that's perfectly reasonable. And Psalm 16 will help us do that, because Psalm 16 helps us to see that there really are only two ways to live. We will either live in fidelity to God... I've set the Lord always before me. The Lord is my chosen cup and portion. And if we live in fidelity with God, we will walk into a, a different kind of life. I'm not saying it's a life free of suffering. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a life free of hardship. If you, if you know the story of our church, if you, if, if you know this church, you know that's not, that's not true. What I am saying is, is that having one monster to fight sure beats having a thousand And that's the grace of God. So, where am I? Where are we? Are we faithful enough to attain the favor of God? Uh, He says in in the Psalm, "I have set the Lord always before me, and refused to run other gods, is run after other gods." Is that true? You know, intellectually, I think most of us would say that God is our God. That God is one God. That God is alone. But practically, we all habitually, in good times, in good times, run after other idols. And when the monster comes, what's our reflex? What have we trained ourselves to do? Intellectually, you know, we say God's our God, but there's something else going on here. During Thanksgiving, I studied something called henotheism. Now, you're probably familiar with monotheism and polytheism, right? So let's think of this in terms of, of marriage, because there's a reason why marriage is written into the story of God the way it is. So let's talk about monogamy. I'm married and I'm faithful. That's monotheism. Let's talk about promiscuity. I'm not married, and I'm looking constantly for something to satisfy me. It's promiscuity. That's That's polytheism. Right? I don't have just one God, I have like many. But then you've got adultery, which is something in between those two, right? So I had to be careful to pick names for people that, that aren't in our congregation. I'm gonna give you three three guys, right? Okay, so so I had to change one of the names last second. I my last my last guy was Larry. <laughs> Sorry, Larry. <laughs> I had to change it. So if you're named any of these things, I apologize. I'm, uh, so let's say Jim. Jim isn't married, and he's super promiscuous. So functionally, like we're Jim's a polytheist. Okay, does that make sense? He's the at a spiritual level, what worship looks like for someone that's hyper promiscuous and not settled on one god, but just kind of always looking for something to satisfy them, is is polytheism. And there's a reason why. There's a reason why in, in, uh, you could observe an increase in sexual promiscuity amongst polytheistic cultures. It's this basic idea that I'm a shopper and I'm going around the app store looking for an app to do what I need it to do. So you've got that. So Jim, that's Jim. He's not married. He's super promiscuous. He's a polytheist. Bob is faithful to his wife. He's a monotheist. He's chosen one thing. right? But then Tom... He's married, and he wants to stay that way, but he's a serial adulterer. Because in various moments, sometimes good times, sometimes bad times, he runs after another woman. So there's three different, really, forms of theology, right? There's monotheism, there's polytheism, but then there's this thing that's often not discussed, henotheism, and while monotheism and polytheism are probably the most well-known. I'd say henotheism is the most common. I'd say most of us are henotheists through and through. Truth be told, that's where most of us, in our relationship with God, land all too often. We have a formal commitment and appreciation for the God of the universe, but we have multiple side pieces that we run to in good times, and in bad. Now, I've been a Christian for a little while, and um, I think after you've been a Christian for a little while, you've you've dealt with the things that seem really obvious in terms of idols. Not that you've fixed them, but you at least know what they are. You, know, you, you, you come to realize that, that work can become an idol very easily. You come to realize that sex can become an idol very easily. You, you come to realize that food can be an idol very easily. And I'm definitely not daring to stand up in front of you today and saying, you know, I figured those things out. Check, check, check. Good, good as gold. But so I'm not saying those are those are not an issue in a, you know, in a Christian's life for a long after they've been a Christian for quite some time. But you become you were so affixed on dealing with those things that you may not realize that there's one final idol um, I'm seeing in my life, and I think this is true of all people, that the last idol I'll ever repent of is myself. You are the most seductive and stubborn false god you'll ever encounter. And I start thinking about myself as the last idol. The last idol I'll ever really repent of. The last idol I'll really ever stop running to, the last idol that I need God's help to deal with is myself. Trusting in myself, viewing my world through my understanding, viewing my circumstances through my understanding. In this strange way, this is my most henotheistic tendency, to say that I trust God and then run into my own understanding. So, um, the problem with this is that we all want the good life. We all want stability. We all want happiness. We all want hope and suffering. But this spiritual promiscuity, and that's what it is, this henotheism, this thing we do where we kind of, we're formally with God, but we've got a bunch of other side things going on. This voids all the promises of God. Uh, This voids all of the good life that we want. It's sort of like we all live in this small town together. And in the middle of the town in the town square there's a bank. And the bank is uh like we'll call it Grace Bank or whatever. And uh and we'll just call it God's bank. And we know that inside this bank is just floor to ceiling gold. We all know it. We all know and we all want we all want it and we know that like we could have it if we could get to it. But there's this stupid little lock on the front. And for hundreds of years, we've all tried to figure out a way to get it unlocked, and we can't. Because we're spiritual adulterers, and that lock is for faithfulness. And we don't have the key. So all of this stuff, all of these good things we want, I mean, just, just reflexively over and over again, we just can't get in. Even if our faithfulness is like 90%, which guarantee it's more like three. But even if our pr- faithfulness is like 90%, it's just not enough to access all of these promises of God. Spiritual adultery, both for you know, kind of very practical reasons and also very theological reasons, disqualifies us from the good life. So I, I want to just take you through it real quickly. Um, six reasons Six thoughts about this spiritual adultery, this tendency to run after other gods, and why it's ruining our lives. The first one is is that it's slandering God. When we run after other gods, we are slandering the name of God. Slandering is saying untrue things about someone, and we're saying when we run after other gods that he isn't all satisfying. That's what we're saying, right? We're saying, God, you're not all satisfying. I need to run over here to get this thing or that thing to supplement you. I was uh, cooking a vegetarian meal for a friend the other day, and I'm not a good, I'm a a decent cook, but I'm not a good vegetarian cook. And throughout the whole process of preparing this meal, I kept wanting to grab like bacon and sausage and things and throwing it in there. Like I almost did it accidentally a few times. You know, there's just something in my mind that says this, this dish of vegetables is not enough. (laughs) <laughs> Something else has to happen here. <laughs> well, I mean, what's, what's so interesting about our spiritual promiscuity is, is that our instincts are right. Most things aren't all satisfying. But God is. But when we run to other idols, we're saying to God, we're slandering him. We're saying, you're not all satisfying. We're, we're also saying, you're not safe. You know, uh, when we when we invest our money into you know a 401k or retirement plan or whatever, or or maybe some of you are you know have have regular uh, relationships, daily relationships with the stock market. I don't know, but the the thing that everyone tells you is to diversify, diversify, diversify. This is the this is the the, the stock equivalent of putting don't put all your eggs in one basket. Why? Because baskets break. And I can't predict which basket will break. So I'm putting all my eggs in different baskets. When I'm investing my stocks, I know that something's going to go wrong. I just don't know which one. I know one of these stocks is going to fail me. So I just don't know which one it's going to be. So I diversify. Again, a really great instinct, but not at all appropriate in a relationship with the one true God. When we go to other gods in addition to having this relationship with God, we are saying you are not all satisfying and you are not safe. I have to put some of me somewhere else because if I put all of me in you and you failed me, I would become utterly undone. So, so one of the reasons why spiritual adultery is a bad idea is because it's just awful and evil, evil slanders to God. Like it's just saying things about God that aren't true. And by the way, every time you do these things, you are preaching to yourself false things about the nature of God. You are saying and reinforcing with your actions, God, you are not safe. God, you are not satisfying. And then you think later, well, why don't I find God safe and satisfying? Well, look at your behavior. Look at where you put your treasure, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that's one reason why it's a bad idea. There's another reason, and that's just good old-fashioned pride. Sometimes when we host a large group of picky eaters, usually my uh, my brother and his kids uh, from Omaha, we'll just take them to a mall food court. That way we can all be equally miserable. Uh, now, the, the idea is, uh, you know, well... Some kids, the poorly disciplined ones, uh, they they think that parents think, this is dumb, parents don't think this, that if I give my kids enough choices, they'll be happy. The exact opposite is true, okay? But some of us, some people have trained their kids to eat this way, right? So that a kid can't possibly enjoy a meal that they didn't have a whole investment in choice in, in making. So if they don't get to choose from multiple things, then they can't be happy. So So we take people to the the, the mall food court. That way, everybody gets a choice. It's not really about eating subpar Chinese or subpar pizza or whatever. It's, It's about you take ownership over your food. I know that's what's going to make you happy. Well, again, that may work if you're trying to feed a huge family. But if you think that you are competent, capable, or that it's even right for you, to treat God like a cafeteria plan, then you're saying something about yourself that is honestly provoking the judgment of God. See, when you are prideful enough to claim that you're capable of writing your own recipes for how life should go, you're being prideful. And, And that's a bad idea because... God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And it's also a bad idea just from like, a, like kind of a logic perspective because God's the giver of good things, and if you want good things, you shouldn't make the giver of good things mad. So, so not only are we slandering God, but we're also being very prideful when we run to other idols. The third reason why it's a bad idea is just contradiction. The problem is, is that all of our idols don't agree on what they want. So So the classic kind of, the classic one that I hope no one here is dealing with but the kind of classic problem of the 20 year old frat boy is I want to be healthy but I also want to have unlimited sex. And those are two idols that are going to compete against each other. Because if you fling yourself out into the seas of promiscuity you will not stay physically healthy. So now the gods are competing with each other. More my speed I want to do well at work. I want my family to be happy. Well, there is a way where I can serve God and subordinate those two underneath my service to God, and they all kind of work. But when I run after these as idols, they're competing against each other. So the third reason why spiritual (laughs) adultery is kind of a bad idea is, is that your lovers won't agree with each other, and they'll all consume you. Fourth, deception We are so easily tricked into thinking we know best so that we go whole bore into choosing some idol that we think will make us happy, and we usually wind up thinking that we picked the wrong ones, which is, of course, not exactly true because they're all the wrong ones. But even if, even if somehow you were given license to write the own recipe for your life and choose the idols that you want to choose, you would choose wrongly because you're self-deceived. You don't even know what you need. Number five, disassociation. Um, disassociation or disintegration is a psychological term. It just means that a person is torn between alternating views of the way things are. They have a, there's the way things are, and there's the way they, they think they see things. One of the things that we don't ever talk about that we want deeply in our hearts is to just be fully integrated human beings. That everything in us is headed in the same direction. Rather, that everything in us is fighting against itself. You know, the, the idea of a symphony, a symphony is beautiful. Because however many instruments are in that symphony, remain individual instruments. And they may even be playing different notes. But something is being produced as this thing participates and integrates into itself that is beautiful and harmonious and we love the symphony and we love we love music because this idea of disparate parts all coming into one integrated thing is beautiful and friends we think of that sometimes as the church i'm going to talk about that in a few weeks but honestly like we just want that for ourselves we have disparate parts inside of us. We have we have different passions. We have different things, and the Bible says that these passions are warring inside of us unless they're tamed by one person, and that person is God. So, so running after idols is this way of sort of fragmenting your inner self, so that there's part of you that wants this, and there's part of you that wants this, and they can't agree with each other, and it's just a fully disintegrated way of life. And and six. The, Finally, the reason another reason why it's a bad idea is just that the goodness we're after, the good life that we're after, requires cooperation across our social network, across our community. The saints in the land are all my delight. That's how that's that's at the beginning of our psalm. But if we're all pursuing our little gods, not only are they fighting each other inside of us, but then everybody is at war both within and without. So that James 4 says, what causes uh, quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? And I think he's saying within you at two levels, within each person and then within you, meaning plural, the whole, the whole group of people. They're, they're at war with each other. Why? Because their idols are all in competition for each other. But if they all would just follow God and trust God and pursue God wholly, then you have cooperation that actually accomplishes something. So, in all sorts of ways, spiritual promiscuity disqualifies us from the very pleasures we're after. And we find ourselves in this ocean of sea snakes that are all, I mean, chaotically. We don't know where one ends and one begins. And there's no willing ourselves out of this. So, Peter is thinking about that whole struggle in the life of Israel when he references Jesus in Acts 16. That, everything I just said about the hydra and so on, that was the experience of Israel. They kept trying to find another solution to life's problems other than God, and they kept multiplying their sorrows. But Peter says in Acts 2, that the only person for whom Psalm 16 is to, totally true, really true, is Jesus. So, the Christian gospel is rooted in the understanding that Jesus alone is the only true monotheist of, of, of the world. Okay, so that's the, tr- that's the baseline of the Christian gospel, that Jesus alone is the only one who could say, rightly, the Lord is my chosen portion. I have set the Lord always before me. That he, being the very nature, he was God, and he alone had it within himself. To not be spiritually promiscuous. So instead of provoking, instead of provoke, provoking God's judgment, he was always provoking God's joy. I want you to think about that. Do you know that joy can be provoked? Long time ago, I was sad. Long, it's just one time. Uh, not not true. I was sad. It's just like I think maybe we had Sarah, but not Brooke yet. Newly married, sitting on a couch, moping. And my wife just launches herself from across the room on top of me, like a tigger from Winnie the Pooh, and just says, Let's do something fun! And my joy was provoked. Right? Friends, in all of our spiritual promiscuity, we provoke the judgment of God. But it's important to remember that in all of his faithfulness, Jesus provokes the joy of God. Isn't that amazing? The joy of God is provoked by Jesus. Jesus said that God is totally safe and that God is totally satisfying and that there is no limit to his goodness and that all good things come only by seeking God first. Jesus wasn't inner conflicted in any way. He He had an integrated person. He was the one true integrated person. He didn't have contradictory passions. There was no war waging inside of Jesus. He was offered competing gods he was offered idols and goods and he 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 heard their false claims but jesus was the only one to say i will not run after their idols the lord is my chosen portion and my cup so the christian gospel says jesus is actually the only person who has a key to that bank full of gold he's the only person who has access to the good life which we all long to have, because he's the only person who's been true, who's been faithful. So when Peter quotes David's psalm, he isn't saying that David, he's making the point, David was not trusting in his own faithfulness. David wasn't saying, I, I have set the Lord always before me. He was saying that Jesus was working through David to prophesy about his coming experience, Jesus' coming experience, living life on earth. Uh, let me read the, a few verses back to you now. Think of Jesus saying these, okay? Imagine Jesus saying these. The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shoal, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, Jesus is the only one that gets to say that without some kind of a a wincing in his conscience somewhere. You ever read the Psalms and think, that's not me. How can I claim these promises? That's not me. You know, I learned this trick like, you know, about 10 years ago. As soon as I think that, say, but that's Jesus. Jesus alone can pray Psalm 16 with authority. And Jesus alone can claim all the promises, the good life that comes through those promises and faithfulness. Now, so I want you to think about the simple fact that Jesus, Jesus offered his perfect spiritual monogamy, his perfect spiritual fidelity up to redeem a bunch of whores. What do you do when you have something really clean? You protect it. Jesus took his perfect purity and let it be trashed by the sin of our spiritual adultery. Not only does that pay for our spiritual adultery, but in a very real way, his faithfulness is so much stronger than our faithlessness that he is progressively changing us to be more faithful. I want you to think about, I think it's verse 4 again, uh, the sorrows of uh, those that run after other gods are multiplied. That verse, this week, helped me to understand something I'd always thought about with the sufferings of Jesus, Help me to understand a little bit better. Did you ever notice, and this is going to be a word that my girls use? Did you ever notice that the death of Jesus just feels like really extra? Do, did you ever notice how he could have died like four different ways? There, there four or five different things happened to him that could have killed him. It wasn't as if Jesus faced a one-headed monster at all. Think about it, like. We see a multiplication of sorrows heaped on Jesus. It's not enough to die on a cross. Let's, let's jam a, a, thorn of, a crown of thorns on your head and, 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 and make fun of you. It's, it's, that's not enough either. Let's, let's strip you of all your clothes and gamble for them at your feet. No, that's, that's not enough either. Let's beat you and pull your beard out. No, that's not enough. Let's, let's also uh, have your friends abandon you. Let's, let's have someone betray you. Let's, let's let the justice system fail you. Let's let all the leaders of your own religion decide that you're not worthy of life. It's like layers and layers and layers. It's the hydra. It's the hydra of human sin. And it's just slithering around the cross. And it's taking its best, bet, best bites at Jesus. And Jesus is facing the multiplied sorrows of our spiritual adultery on the cross. But... He is so faithful as to win that impossible battle so that he can say, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. I'm that faithful. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. And in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose to the fullness of life. And that's the point Peter's making. There has come the hyper faithful one. And he has slain the many-headed dragon of our multiplied sorrows. And he rose and he reigns. Remember, we're thinking about Jesus saying these things. What does Jesus mean when he says through David in Psalm 16, 6, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What is Jesus saying? What does he mean? What does he inherit? Well, the whole world, so there's that. And a redeemed people. Jesus inherits a redeemed people who will rule with him, a a being redeemed people who are growing into their capacity to reign and rule with him. He he bought a bride, and he's teaching her monogamy. What incredible, what an an incredible idea. I, I will make you mine. You are not faithful, and I will teach you faithfulness. And we're learning. In Christ, we are learning little by little, and life does begin to work differently. We begin to be like my friend on Facebook. We begin to see a difference between how I used to approach the monster of sorrow and how sometimes now God gives me faith to not respond in unbelief, and the thing stays the thing, and it's hard but there's an end to it. Cooperation with the saints becomes possible. Integration with ourselves becomes possible. The inner war of contradictory passions is quieted. It's still present, but it's quieted. It's dying down. We become more wise, less deceived about the false claims of false idols. And that's the gift of Jesus. Let me pray.